it seems it seems that there is no way to do what we need to do except for communicating it to the public who would then put pressure on the system in order for it to change and that seems the only route yeah uh, the only viable route that we have yeah i haven't i haven't seen one single new classic economist look at MMT and then conclude that, that MMT is correct and what, what he taught is wrong. Uh, by the way, I'm probably the only one who, who was like this. So I uh, I learned uh, economics at university. I did my PhD and only afterwards I, I heard about MMT. So I, I looked it up and I, I basically said, okay, this this is correct. Um, it's, it's an odd situation to put me in as a post-PhD student, <laughs> as a postdoc. But I, I understood that what I had learned so far was was basically not true, and it, not not even what is what not helpful, but it was basically it was completely wrong. Some people are trying to defend neoclassical economics by saying, oh, it's it simplified economics and it helps to teach students valuable lessons. No, it's not. It's just plain wrong. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Oscar Volzgaard and Dirk Entz on their 2020 response to a paper criticizing modern money theory, or MMT. Dirk is a PhD economist based in Berlin, and Oscar is a Danish PhD student in innovation and public policy with a master's in international political economy and economics. Their paper is in response to a 2019 paper by Danish PhD mainstream economist Jeppe Drudel called A Kinder Egg on MMT. It expresses primarily the mainstream concern for the long-term fiscal sustainability of government spending and its corresponding debt and interest. Since MMT demonstrates that large amounts of new spending on public purpose is perfectly safe, not to mention desperately needed by millions, the criticism is essentially aimed at the MMT project itself. This interview and the mainstream argument inspired a lengthy post addressing the several assumptions on which the argument is based and why each of them is incorrect. A link to the post can be found in the show notes. A major reason that Oscar and Dirk decided to write their response was because Drudel's paper was written in what we consider to be good faith. By that, we mean that it cites MMT academic literature and treats its authors with respect. Too many so-called critiques do neither. They pretend that MMT says something it doesn't and then vehemently criticize that made-up argument. They are also often snide and personally insulting to the MMT project and its developers and supporters, both as individuals and as a whole. I've collected several examples of good faith arguments against MMT in a post, along with responses by MMTers, 
a link to which can also be found in the show notes. Regardless of faith, the argument between mainstream and MMT is not occurring in the academic papers themselves, but in the assumptions on which those papers are based. In other words, the argument is not taking place in the papers, but in the world around them. Oscar and Dirk's response does not directly address Drudel's arguments, but rather rejects its assumptions and replaces them with ones that reflect the world in which we actually live. After seeing Dirk and Oscar's response, Drudel stated on Twitter, this is a non-reply. Especially with those critiques that are of less than good faith, they are not written in the spirit of learning or improving MMT or the economics discipline as a whole. Rather, they are to convince the general public to dismiss MMT and its developers and supporters out of hand. MMT clearly has the more convincing argument and is also understandable by the general public. It is convincing substantially because it is understandable by the general public. The only hope mainstream has is to prevent the public from looking at those arguments or to its authors to begin with and to convince them that if they do, they shouldn't believe their lying eyes. This episode is part one of a two-part conversation, and it's also part one of a larger four-part series on the relationship between mainstream or neoclassical economics and MMT. Parts two and three are with Sam Levy on the core assumptions of mainstream economics, and part four is again with Dirk and Oscar on the larger political context in which these issues exist. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now, on to our conversation. All right, well, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on. Um, I've, I've enjoyed your paper, uh, <laughs> read both of them quite a few times, <laughs> um, along with uh, Steve Keen and something by Scott Falwell, which really helped regarding uh, interest rates and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, well, why don't, why don't we just get started with, uh, could you guys just please briefly introduce yourself and talk about how you guys uh, came together, please? Um, yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm an economist based in Berlin. Um, I've been working in academic positions uh, almost all of my life. I became interested in, in balance sheets when I was uh, starting my professional career doing the accounting for Saab Switzerland, the car maker from Sweden. And that's where, where I met uh, balance sheets first in my, my first private sector job. And then when I came back to university, I understood that if you want to understand money and, and everything connected to money, then you have to go down to the balance sheet level and understand what's what's going on there. Yeah, and that's that's how I understood that that basically money matters. 
and um, looking into uh, the the real workings of the monetary systems, I found that what is basically assumed by mainstream economics is is basically wrong, and and unhelpful and helpful at, at best. So I I think that I met Asuka, I think probably a year ago. I'm I'm not sure where, where we met. We met we met in London at a conference, but I think we knew each other already. So probably we met online somewhere for the first time. Great, Asuka. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we, I met you first time at the at the first MMC conference in Europe, which you hosted in, in Berlin, okay. yeah. um, which was a, a tremendous feat. So thank you for that, Dirk. My reason for being there uh, was that I had, um, during my studies in political economy as a, as a subfield of political science at the University of Copenhagen, my master's thesis had been a, an MMT-informed study of how the Danish monetary system works. So I had um, read all the MMT papers, books, and I was uh, quite convinced. Um, and, the, and yet there was this notion about the consolidated government, which has also been a sort of subject of critique by the likes of Marc Lavoie and such, whether this consolidation uh, perspective, whether that is, is the right way to approach the government finances or if, if it should be understood as separate from, from, the, from the central bank. So this was the crucial point I wanted to understand if it was uh, valid to make this consolidation of the central bank and the, and the treasury in the, in the normal uh, ways of understanding the government. And, and the implication of doing the consolidation is that the government spends by issuing money. It's not something uh, extraordinary to finance itself by issuing money, so to speak. So this was what I, what I studied and I looked into the, I went through all the, the official papers describing how the Danish monetary system works. And I interviewed the uh, Danish central bank governor, Lars Rode, and, uh, and he even said to me outright that the, uh, <laughs> that the central bank is the agent of the, the government and therefore you can consolidate the balance sheets. So I was in Berlin at DX conference to, to show this analysis and it was very much inspired by the work done by Scott Fulweiler and Eric Tumoyne in, in the United States. And uh, to present myself, um, right now I'm doing a PhD at the University College London uh, at the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, um, which is uh, a fairly young institute uh, founded by Mariana Mosucato and uh, Oh. co-directed by uh, Rainer Katzel, where it's it's all about innovation and how to shape the economy in in a way to to rethink capitalism really to make it work better. But I think uh, many share this notion that capitalism isn't working properly, and even even the, the World Economic Forum is uh, saying this and, and recently sent out videos that uh, neoliberalism has failed and what's coming up next and, and so forth and after having um, gotten familiar with the MMT, the, the natural question is what, what's next? So, okay, we have all this fiscal capacity that we're not using in developed countries and monetarily sovereign countries. So how should it be spent? How can we reorganize capitalism? So that is why I've, I've gone to London and, and the RFP to, to do my PhD studies. Um, 
That's great. So, so your research in Denmark with your central bank and so on is basically that version, your version of Stephanie Kelton's paper of can taxes and bonds finance government spending. That's that's the equivalent for your country. Yeah, and and perhaps more particular, uh, the equivalent of Eric Tumoin's two papers, or or he has one specific paper about the the interrelations between the Fed yeah. and the and the U.S. Treasury, which yeah. was really eye opening to me because it really showed how uh, the, the U- U.S. government uh, circumvents these limitations uh, that they've uh, put upon themselves. And this was really eye-opening to me and really the, you can say, problem micro-foundations of, of uh, how the, the government spends in order to understand that, that government spending really is creating money. And, and all that follows from that, that, that bond issuance is really just and interest rate maintenance operations and taxes are destroying currency. Hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Well, all right. So the primary reason I got I brought you guys on is because Yepe wrote a paper. Uh, basically, it's basically just the mainstream view of MMT. I mean, that's basically what it is. And your and you guys wrote a response to it. And the reason you chose to do so. Uh, which you'll get into is basically that it's a good faith effort that he quotes MMT. It's not just insulting. It's not just, you know, arrogant or, or uh, ad hominems and so on. Um, so it's just a really good example of basically MMT versus mainstream. Uh, I originally saw it and I added it to, I have a post where I document uh, what I consider good faith uh, criticisms of MMT in that vein where they quote or they're not insulting or, and so on. Uh, that's how I discovered it on Facebook when you posted it, Asker, on the law, uh, Money Law and Finance Group. Um, so could you just, could you talk about how you, you know, discovered that paper, what your thoughts on it were, and how you decided that it was worthy of responding to, and, and I guess, you know, just the, the decision to do so and your experience writing it? Yeah, sure. Um I had met Yeb uh, a few times, I believe, beforehand. Um, he's at the University of Copenhagen, so it's it's a small world, really, in uh, in Denmark. And um, and I think as he's he's a prog- progressive kind of person um, in a neoclassical department. So I think he was intrigued by the arguments being made by MMT. Uh, he can have a more expansionary policy stance and so forth. But but yet, as uh, neoclassical economics. Um, economists are quite critical of, of the claims being made at the same time. So he looked into it and he actually sent me a rough draft in, uh, in the first place asking for comments if he was misunderstanding something and I don't under- remember exactly what I wrote to him uh, and then he turned it into to this more uh, full-bodied paper or review, you could say, of, of MMT. Um, this was in 2019. At the time I wrote a rough, a rough draft of a response, but never finished it, never developed it fully. And that, but that is what I did with Dirk later on to this year, this summer. Uh, so it's a bit, a bit of a delayed response. But, but the thing that uh, prompted me to do so, uh, thinking it served the response, was, uh, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a good faith. It's, uh, there's definitely a lot of things that it doesn't quite comprehend about MMT. Uh, but it's in good faith, and I think that counts for something. When you've seen all, you've also seen all the, the so-called prominent economists uh, at the global stage uh, writing about MMT. Uh, we have Rogoff and 
and uh, and Paul Krugman and so forth, uh, where it's just uh, disingenuous uh, kinds of critique, which is not which has not been targeted at an MMT audience trying to get a dialogue. It's it's been about uh, dissuading the public from <laughs> looking into from taking MMT seriously, really. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was was uh, <laughs> also that in when in Denmark there's quite a bit of groupthink. Uh, so every, everyone is a neoclassical economist, more or less. And then when when someone is uh, is critique when when Jeff's paper came out and he was critiquing MMT, everyone was was patting each other's back. That uh, and kind of uh, there was <laughs> this atmosphere on Twitter that now MMT had been disproven, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, yeah, found that uh, a bit hilarious. Uh, but when you're in, when you're when your environment there is, is completely neoclassical, it's it's not so easy. So it's also it, uh, prompted me to to write something uh, more of a serious response to it. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so uh, let me see where I am. So I'm gonna write. I'm gonna I'm gonna briefly say what I understand. Um, I see the core of his argument being. Um, so what what Yeppe is saying, what, and I guess you know, in a larger sense, mainstream is saying, is is a con- it's a concern about yeah. MMT says we we have a lot more fiscal space and we could do a lot more, but it's the concern of if we actually go forward with that, what are the, what are the long term implications of that? So. Uh, yeah, if you model out government spending and its corresponding debt and interest to on the debt to infinity like 100 years in the future, for the expected and predicted deficits over the next 100 years, then under the assumption of loanable funds, there are very specific conditions that must be met in order to prevent the central government from defaulting or effectively defaulting. So that even though they can, what they, what mainstream, what, what yet they would call uh, printing money, that there could reach a point that even though they can print money, that doing so would be more harmful than just the choice of defaulting because it would cause such devastation, inflation, and so on. Um, and that this is significantly based on the assumption that even though it may not be realistic to model out that far for 100 years or to infinity, that traders in the United States and abroad are indeed doing that, that they're imagining what this future behavior is going to be by the government and the Federal Reserve, and that if they fear that government spending and interest on the debt may become unfavorable or unstable, that they're going to panic buy and panic sell. And that they're doing that would cause a negative spiral that the Fed could not control. And so that this this long-term fear would actually be magnified much more quickly because of this panicking of the market that the Fed couldn't do anything about. And so this this unobservable fear must be avoided at all costs. So it's it's very similar to Nehru that you simply must avoid the unseen boogeyman of a runaway inflation at all costs, because if you reach that point even once, then devastation. And it's the same thing with this panic buying, uh, that if you, if you spend to the extent that the market fears what might happen, that they will then panic which will cause things to spiral out of control and nothing can be done about it. Um, so I, I believe that that's in the ballpark. Um, but if you guys could take it from there and you know correct as necessary, 
And uh, that that's what I see the core of Dirk's, ar- excuse me, Yepe's argument, especially in his first, you know, the, the section uh, where he sets up all the mathematics to, mm. to justify that, uh, that yeah. assertion. Yeah, I think if I if I may, um, I think he's a very very good neoclassical economist. Um, but once, of course, you you understand that the neoclassical model is about a real economy with no money money in it, then of course you you will understand that it does not apply to this world that we are living in. To to give you an example, let us just assume a, an economy where we have only wheat. Okay, so it's just about about farmers producing some kind of grain. And at the end of the period, there there will be some kind of production, some some kind of output, and the farmer will consume a part of the output, and what is left over is savings, or saving in this case. So so this kind of saving uh, is what the government can borrow. So this is the kind of world where where Yappe is coming from. Basically, you first have to to produce, and then you are basically saying, okay, if you want to borrow something I, that I have, um, offer me a nice interest rate, and I might give it to you. So this is the idea of basically loanable funds, where you basically have a have a pot of of resources that you can borrow, but it's a real pot of resources, and and that basically creates this tension. So in Yappe's in Yappe's world, if if the government borrows, um, there's less there's less saving for for everybody else, uh, and that of course is is not the, the right kind of. Uh, um, framework to use for for the real world. So so in the real world, with well, understanding MMT, we understand that the government is the creator of money, and the government can always spend. And that means that if the government spends, it doesn't take away anything from anybody. Okay. So of course, when it when it spends, it will it will buy some resources, and these resources will not be available for for anybody else to to use. But you have to you have to basically understand that there's a monetary process and there's the, the real side of the economy and they're intertwined. And for people like like Yeppe, there is no there is no uh, there's no monetary system. Um, so everything is is real in terms of, of talking about resources and, and money is, is not in there. And that is basically what the problem is with his approach that he, he seems to believe um, that there's crowding out. Okay, so basically, he seems to be, he, he believes apparently that if the government is spending more money, then there's less money available for for the private sector, for households and for firms to borrow, and that means basically for him that because these households or these firms are very productive, that if they get less money, they will pre- have a lower productivity, which means GDP growth will fall. That that roughly is the logic of of the new classical view when it comes to to government debt. Um, and this is also why why he's asking these, uh, from our point of view, strange theoretical questions, whereas empirical reality already tells him that that the questions that he's asking are probably not relevant. And coming back to your idea of of basically looking at the future and looking at, I don't know, 75 years ahead, 100 years ahead. Yeah, I mean, the the whole model only works when you when you believe um, that government deficits lead to government debt and that this will at some point be repaid. So this is why they often use these kind of, of long-run models, basically claiming that at some point we will have to repay those those debts, which clearly does not happen. So public debt usually goes up over the decades and also over the centuries. Sometimes it goes down a bit, um, but it's not because we are trying to, to repay our debts or something. So that's that's my take. Maybe, maybe ask I can add to that. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll um, return to the arithmetic in the paper, um, and 
and what what you're outlining there, Jeff, is right. But I, I wouldn't say yeah, but it's not emphasizing so much much on the panic that that you could uh, envision happening if if you have the quote unquote unsustainable uh, public debt, that which would lead to this panic, as as we know from from the private sector. This is what happens in a bank run, right? So it's not a it's not a completely artificial dynamic. It's it's something that occurs in the private sector. But the question is, is it is it relevant for the public sector? Can there come this risk that that you will stand empty-handed as a creditor because the government can't pay, or you it will be inflated away, or, or what have you? But what he's what he's basically doing is just uh, making some basic arithmetic, trying to to find out if if the if the debt to GDP ratio will either stabilize, um, decrease, or or rise towards infinity through time. And, and this is really the definition of uh, unsustainability is that the debt to GDP ratio is, is going towards infinity. And that's just, he, he doesn't go further to talk about the panics and what that might cause in financial markets or whatever. But, but it's just that it's, it's, it cannot go to infinity. It's, it's just a point of, of logic. So that means that for the way policymakers are, are led to, to, to believe that they should make adjustments Adjustments is to to change the the policy in order to make to make uh, sustainability uh, be the result of this uh, equation. Um, so so the debt to GDP ratio will stabilize. Um, and and it's just it's really just a matter of of whether the interest rate or the growth rate is the highest. Which one is the highest? If the interest rate is higher than uh, higher than growth. And basically, uh, you'll have exploding debt, and, and vice versa. If growth is high in an interest rate, you you won't have these uh, exponential scenarios, and then you, you you're not you're not in a in a bad shape. And that it, it really points to to the question: what determines the interest rate? Because it's so fundamental in all of this. And this is that is why we wrote in our response: we focus so much on the interest rate and the and the and the real quote unquote, and the monetary theory and perspective on what the interest rate is in the economy. And this is really uh, the fundamental, um, what fundamentally separates heterodox and orthodox, orthodox economies. The, the loanable funds implies that the Fed can set the nominal interest rate, which is the current target rate, but the loanable funds implies that they do not have as much control over the real interest rate, meaning the longer term interest rates. Can you elaborate on that? And that's, that's the reason that they would lose control. That's the reason that market fears would cause the loss of control as only if loanable funds is true, which would imply that the Fed hmm. would not have as much control over those interest rates as I understand it. Yeah, the, the idea is that the real interest rate is determined by real forces, that is non-monetary forces. So that yeah. is the, the savings desires and the investment desires in the, in the economy. And as pointed out this could be you could conceptualize the savings as <laughs> as, as uh, goods that are saved physically really and and this is also what the the Bank of England has uh, or the staff has uh, criticized in in some of their working papers that this isn't this is a non monetary theory of the economy which is which is not it's not valid in the, in a world where we finance capital goods um, 
So, so the interest rate, in other words, can always be lower than GDP simply because we choose for it to be lower. The Fed, yeah, that, that is the opposite view exactly. It's it's monetary, it's a monetary value variable, and it's a policy variable which is uh, at the command of the issuer of the of the currency. Okay. Yeah, the the other thing is that um, in neoclassical economics, there's no difference between users of currency and issuers of currency. So the the government is supposed to work just like um, just like a household. Okay, so if you if you borrow money, um, you're supposed to repay it, and if you borrow money, there's of course the possibility that nobody will want to lend to you, and then you cannot borrow money, um, and that is basically something which the neoclassicals are always talking about. This kind of idea that the that the government would have to borrow money, whereas matter of fact they they spend. Um, so that's our point. That basically there is no there's no problem of financing government spending. It doesn't happen. The government just instructs the central bank to spend. Uh, maybe they need some kind of green light for that. So some political complicated complicated rules so that the central bank is is actually doing the spending for the treasury. But in the end, the central bank is the bank of the government, and normally they they just spend when Congress or the government basically instructs them to to spend. And this is one of the main problems in communication with the neoclassical authors that they they don't have this kind of distinction and they're always talking about government borrowing when a matter of fact they are not borrowing at all they are spending yeah I'm, i would add that that in the neoclassical approach you see that um it's conceptualized in this government budget constraint that the government can be financed in three ways so there's an ex-ante view of of how the government finance uh, public finance works, you can either you can either finance the government by by taxes, by issuing bonds, or by issuing money. So that there are three distinct options that can go into that could go into spending, um, and and they recognize that the government can can issue money. But the the thing is that they see this as um, as a sure way to inflation. So that's that's why Yebe writes quote I have. However, never seen a model where continued growth of base money in excess of nominal GDP did not result right. in inflation. And this right. is also why economists such as uh, John Taylor, he was one of the co-authors of uh, his, the, the, the man who gave name to the Taylor rule and about how, how to model uh, central bank behavior in the, in the neoclassical model. Um, and 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 they wrote a letter to to the Federal Reserve when when the when the U.S. central bank started to do do quantitative easing policies and uh, this expanding the, the the amount of base money in the economy and they wrote that it would lead to debasement of the currency and inflation. So this is really an entrenched idea that if you go for this third option, um, you are on the path to inflation. Um, and 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 again, the, when you when you look at public finance through the MMT lens, you get the opposite vision, or the opposite uh, idea of how the world works. The government, as the issue of the currency, always issues money. And then the three options I mentioned before is, is about what happens after the fact to the money that gets spent into existence. So it's, it's more about the destiny of the, of the new money injected into the economy. So either they could be taxed back out to the, of the economy, they could be exchanged for bonds if to uh, to change the interest rate or serve some other purpose, uh, or they could be left as money, which is really the result of quantitative easing. They get swapped back into money that is just lying around in the 
on the central bank's balance sheet. As I understand mainstream view of printing, what they call printing money, which we call issuing currency, that they say, sure, you can print money, but it it doesn't that makes that guarantees that at some point you will have to still have debt and and taxation at some point. Yeah. Like where where MNT says it's a completely separate thing. Yes, you may need it, but for different reasons, inflation and so on. But but as I understand it, the mainstream says printing money. You sure you can do it, but you absolutely will have to issue debt and taxation in order to pay for that either now or in the future. I believe. Yeah, the neoclassical view is a view in which morality takes main main stage. Um, so you can you can finance your government spending from taxes, which is basically fine. So basically, first you have some kind of income, tax income, and then you spend. That's the first idea. Then you, if this is not enough, you can issue debt. So you are selling government bonds, which is a problem because now you have public debt and maybe you cannot repay it. And these kind of issues uh, might arise in the future. And then the third option, which for us, again, it's the only possible action is that the central bank is just paying for it. What, again, what you are right. I mean, this is us saying basically issuing money, crediting money to the bank's accounts by the central bank. They call it printing money. And this kind of printing money, they say, has no, has no other possibility but to end in hyperinflation. And this is the kind of morality play that they are doing. And if you ask central bankers about this kind of view, they they look at you and they smile um, because they just know it's not true. And this is the kind of of problem that you see with the mainstream view that that the practitioners uh, at all the central banks, you have have these people, they are very diplomatic. Um, But again, if if you ask central bankers whether it really works like this uh, uh, and they know about things, they, they basically confirm that this is not how it works. Well, actually, if I may, let me take a quick aside related to that, which is you, uh, I don't remember who the character, who the players were, but someone said, you know, basically loanable funds. And then you posted the, uh, the paper from the Bank of England saying that loanable funds is not real, is, you know, it's not reality. And then he said, oh, but it's a, but the first page has a disclaimer that this is an opinion. Can you actually, uh, you know, can you, can you address uh, what you said regarding that? That yes, it's officially labeled as an opinion, but it wouldn't something like it wouldn't work its way to you know be on that website unless something happened. Yeah, yeah. So I'm an academic, and that means that whatever I want to publish, I just publish. So Asya and I were publishing the paper. We we didn't ask our employers uh, whether we could publish that. No way. This is not how how you how the academic world works. So if you work for a central bank, you have a boss. And um, if you want to publish a paper, you'll, you'll have to ask your boss, so, so can we publish this kind of paper? And they, they might tell you no, and then you can publish that as a private person, okay? Like Jeppe Drudol did more or less. He published it somewhere on his homepage as just a paper. Hmm. So he's an outside academic system. But that's how it does is done. But uh, when the central bank basically says, yeah, you can publish that in our working paper series, um, they basically they basically stand behind that and they they normally vet the papers that, that are published there. So it's not like they say, yeah, well, it was just the opinion of, of one of our, our guys. That's what they say, of course. But all these papers convey some kind of message. There's always a message there and you, you cannot just go publish a paper and then claim that your, your central bank uh, doesn't know about it or, or said no to it or... or they, they clearly uh, look at the stuff that they, that they publish. And the Bank of England in 2014, they decided that they want to clear up this, this idea of, of how banks actually create money. 
and they they brought this paper out and it was it was a very very huge thing for academics so so they know that that their papers have have a lot of influence on the academic world um, so that is why I, I basically said, well, of course, it's not the opinion of the central bank, but you cannot get this paper published without approval of somebody high up in the central bank. And I would presume that there are no compatible papers of that loanable funds as reality. I would presume that that's correct on the, BO, on the Bank of England site. Uh, no, yeah, correct. So yeah. They, they, have, they have models in which they have these loanable fund things operating um, but there's no paper which basically claims that the, the view that banks create their own money is wrong and, and that in reality, you, you first need savings or reserves to give a loan. So, so yeah, that's completely right. correct. This, this view is not, not supported by any central bank. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, okay. I, so, I, can add, I can add one thing to that. In my, please. When, I, when I did my research and, and looked through the, for my master's thesis and looked into the Danish central bank publications back to the 90s, uh, it was all there, really. They, they were saying that this uh, money multiplier uh, idea is is not it's it's too simplistic. I think there was that kind rejection of what was going on in in universities. But it's it's not like it's it's new in any sense. And and the Bank of England paper also um, uh, also points how to the post Keynesian tradition and how economists like Steve Keen and others have uh, held this going. Um, through the 20th century, really. Okay, good. Uh, and MMT economists, obviously. Uh, going back to the the modeling out to infinity, um, I found that interesting. Where you, I'm, I'm still learning, and I did read that the uh, historical time paper, which I found very interesting. Um, but basically, mainstream doesn't consider historical time, which means that given the initial conditions you can you can model properly the final result that's as i understand historical time no excuse me that's the opposite that's logical time where mainstream says as long as you know the initial conditions you can predict the final outcome where historical time which is reality is time changes things change you you, you know once something happens the, the things in the future are unknowable the past is is mm. is is written can't be changed the future is unknowable. That's historical time. Yet, the, yet they model out to infinity, which implies that that you know. I mean, how can you say that that things are not going to change between now and next year, let alone a hundred years from now? So, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, clarifying how that is not a that's not a recognition of historical time. That is still logical time where it's, if you have the initial conditions as opposed to things change ongoing. Yeah, sure. I, I think you laid it out pretty well there, uh, Jeff. Um, it's really a matter of whether uh, the way you approach the future, if that matters for where, where you're going and, and what, what these exercises, um, these modeling exercises, what they do is, is they're, really assuming what we want to know. So, so they are defining certain structural uh, levels for, for the crucial variables that could be GDP growth and so forth. And then, then you can do the, the calculations into, into eternity. And, and I think um, Dimitri Sinkelis, he's, he's really touched well upon this in some of his work. He was, uh, 
he was the head of economic forecasting at the at the UK Treasury, uh, and he's now doing some good academic work on the problems in forecasting the costs of climate change. The work of uh, William Nordhaus and and the likes, where where he's saying equally that that the problem is that we are in these models we're assuming what we actually want to know. We want to know productivity growth. We want to know GDP growth. We want to know the interest rate and the and inflation, but we're assuming it. So, 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 so we, we got it. We, we're putting the cart in front of the horse, really. And, and, and particularly, we're, we're assuming the interest rate in Denmark, we're assuming they're revising it down because they are tired of getting it wrong every year. But, but they're assuming it will go to, to 4% uh, over a range of, in, I think it's in 2040 or 50. So they're just drawing a, a linear line going up there, and they're wrong every year, and they've been wrong for for twenty years now. Um, mm. And and this is so crucial for our paper because we're saying it's a policy variable. Right. Denmark is a special case because we have fixed our currency uh, exchange rate to the euro, so it's but it's still a policy variable of the eurozone, of the ECB, the politician policymakers, unelected policymakers in the ECB. Right. Um, but but this this is really what's going on and then you you have some 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 forecasts of the of the demographic changes and so and you can use this to 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 shape how the how the trajectory goes so it's not just something that goes to to infinity uh, not just some linear lines but they get uh, affected by what is uh, forecasted to occur in the economy and then that could be one of the things it's all structural so it's about the demographic changes that's really driving the the dynamics in the danish um, modeling but but the, the problem is that that you're you're not observing or not taking uh, taking into account what ha- what occurs on the way there so uh, let's take the, gr- the great financial crisis you've probably seen how the how the forecast of of uh, structural gdp or the the max, the maximally uh, attainable GDP, how how that has been lowered permanently by the by the collapse in demand in relation to the great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. That that is it's it's a kind of um, hysteresis effect which you read about in, in Mark Setterfield's uh, paper about historical time. There's there's hysteresis that the way you approach into the future affects where you can go in the future. So, so the thing is, we're not we're not just bouncing back up to our previous trajectory into the future. We are shaping a new one, and in this case, a less productive one. Yeah, so, and it's actually it actually is reminiscent of Back to the Future. I mean, it's just the you know any change in the past is it branches off into to infinite things, and to be able to pretend that you know what branch that's going to be hmm. is just nonsense. Um, a final, a final specific question, and I honestly, you you reminded me, I didn't write this down, so I'm not exactly remembering the connection. Um, but full employment—that basically, the there is an assumption implicit throughout that if these things happen in the face of full employment, that it would be a problem. And you say something in your paper related to. Yeah, maybe that's the case, but we haven't had full employment in forever. Could you? And I don't remember if this is related to the the graphing out, to the modeling out into infinity or not. Um, but if you if you could address that part about full employment and how that's a, uh, I think you call it a thought experiment of some kind. Yeah, I, Dirk, do you want to to come in here, or should I proceed? 
Um, I don't remember your thought experiment, so so maybe <laughs> no. You you, you no, the, the paper the labeled it. The paper labeled it as a thought experiment to even think of the idea of if these things happen, assuming full employment. Yeah, we could assume full employment, but we haven't had full employment for whatever since the war or whatever. Yeah, so so, so um, I'm not exactly certain what 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 you're, you're thinking of, but I think it is that uh, that that we make this this Keynesian point that that neoclassical um, theory takes place in this, what Keynes called the special case, where there's uh, permanently full employment. So, so that, that is where, uh, when, government, when the government uses additional resources, for instance, when it's uh, conducting this uh, expansionary fiscal policy, or so, that, it's, that it's subtracting from what the private sector can do. So there's a physical crowding out when there's full employment, because you have to take uh, take resources out of private use, whereas in, in normal normal workings of a capitalist economy, there's not there's rarely, if ever, um, full employment. So that means that this crowding out, the physical crowding out, I'm not talking about the financial crowding out, which is not taking place. But but when there's not full employment, there's this physical crowding out is it's not occurring either. There can definitely be bottlenecks, which can be an occasion for inflationary pressures, but that's that's a, a mid mid range kind of case. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's let's go to the other side of the paper. On I the would like to say, um, please. Now that you're talking about this, um, I, I looked up the unemployment rate of the United States economy in the post-war era, so everything since 1945, and I think the lowest unemployment rate that I found was roughly two and a half percent. Uh, and I would not consider two and a half percent to be full employment in the sense that you you wouldn't find a worker if you would like to hire somebody. Um, so so I really think that there's a big disconnect in in the mainstream economics between well social reality and what their what their papers are saying. So how can you talk about a full employment economy with crowding out and basically all the workers being employed when in the real world this this has never existed? Maybe the last time this existed was I'm pretty sure during the the World War II economy. So in the war economy of of the 19, early 1940s. So. That is something which is which is always very uh, very strange that these people have models in in which they basically are arguing, and then if you look at the real world, you see that the assumptions are, are nowhere near fulfilled. So um, at least since the 1980s, the U.S. economy is is basically one of mass unemployment. There's there's lots of problems with unemployed people and people who are looking for work, not finding work. People who have given up finding work or looking for work um, better, uh, and they they drop out of the statistics. So so that's the real world. And then to to have um, this colleague uh, argue that that to to argue that we have a full employment economy, and in, in that case this and that would happen well it's it's almost irrelevant because we we haven't had this kind of economy for for many decades so that's that's an economics um, as Oscar said for for a special case but that special case has occurred in a war economy last in 1944 so so why basically talk about this special case and and pretend that this is something which we are basically trying to to uh, say about the real world it's it's clearly not and that special case, as I understand it, is the entirety of the world in which neoclassical models live in, which is yeah. full employment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's let's go to the other side of this, which is um, uh, 
the the reaction that you got to the paper. And so we're now we're going to get into you know, I saw the the response by Yepe on on Twitter, and he just said basically it's not a response because you're not using the methodologies, the maths and the models and so on that that are expected of you, and therefore, you know, we can completely ignore your response entirely. And and actually, what this makes me think of is the maths. The math in his first section of his paper, uh, you know, it's just very new to me, and I found it extremely difficult to understand. And I had a, just a realization yesterday that I realized that in each of his equations, he's basically setting up a definition. So he'll say, like, whatever, uh, we'll, let's define th- this concept of whatever the GDP ratio to be the letter, the lowercase letter b, and then he'll create a formula next to this letter b. And then he'll use that letter B in a, in a subsequent formula, but he'll create definition after definition after definition. And so it's, it's a very, it requires a very logical, like I, I was a computer programmer. So, so like <laughs> it was hard for me to follow. Um, but, but now I understand that he was creating all of these definitions and then using those definitions uh, in each subsequent formula, which basically means it was a very, very complicated definition. And what it makes me think of is that I see it as that, it's intentionally difficult. It's intentionally difficult for lay people to understand. And then you read your paper and, you know, it takes, it takes significant concentration to get through it, but it is written for normal human beings. And I see the advantage of MMT that it is understandable by actual human beings and that the only response that neoclassical could have to it is to throw complicated shiny balls in your face and to say, you know, you have to trust us because this is really complicated and you can't understand what I'm showing you, but you're just going to have to trust me that these guys that you do understand, you know, don't, don't believe your lion eyes like that. So that seems like a, an advantage, a particular advantage that MMT has as long as, you know, we could get the attention of people enough. So, so going back, so the reaction to your paper related to, you know, this methodology and so on. Um, and, you know, the only one that I saw, of course, was, was Yepes on Twitter, but, you know, can you can you talk about the the response that you got to your paper? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, when when Yeba's paper had, had come out uh, last year, there were also I, I didn't mention this in the, in the introduction that there were also many kind of progressive persons who were interested in MMT who had this who were writing to me and saying, "Can you can you provide a?" some kind of response, or is, is he right about this critique? This is bad news for MMT, isn't it? Um, so they were afraid of, of, of pursuing progressive policy uh, based on MMT, right? So, so, so I've been in contact with numerous of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of those persons again, and, and they, as you say, they understand what we're writing, and they understand that the, the crucial weak spot of all the, all the math and, and all we have there is the misconception of what the interest rate is. So I think I think we've been successful in showing why it's so important to get uh, get the interest rate right because all all the math you just described before um, it really it, it comes down to if, if it still comes down to if the interest rate is higher than the, than the growth rate and if we can explain to regular people that the interest rate is a policy variable in a monetary production economy as we have, then, then uh, we are quite far. So I'm, I'm quite uh, satisfied with this. And I, I went to this, uh, we were invited, invited Yeba and I to, uh, to a public debate about MMG by this 
uh, association of uh, mostly uh, elderly uh, economists and <laughs> economic, economically interested persons, um, okay. where we had a public debate, and and I think the the high high point of the of the afternoon was was that Yeber had presented um, his view on MFG, and and he ended ended with this slide where where this guy in the audience pointed out, he really called him out and saying that it says might all the, all the, <laughs> everywhere on your slide, because you're saying the interest rate might rise in the future. We cannot be sure it might go otherwise. The interest rate might be uh, lower now, but it might be higher in the future. And do we risk taking that gamble? So, so I think I felt good when I left there about that, the, uh, that the audience actually understood that they were just that there's fear mongering going around about a policy variable that it you, will increase. You say that they were. Did you say that they were economists? Associate this particular association is is, uh, is more Keynesian uh, based. So, okay. but <laughs> but the the downside is that the average age was quite high, so they won't be uh -huh. around forever. So, uh -huh. uh, so we definitely need to to groom a new new generation of economists in Denmark. Uh, and that, that's also why I'm part of uh, the association Rethinking Economics Denmark, which is an international network of, of, of economic students and who, who are trying to, to increase the pluralism in economic education. Well, maybe I can jump in just a little bit, because I think that there was also the, the result of this uh, discussion that the mainstream economists don't understand accounting. So, for them, macroeconomics is behavior. Um, so basically, they, in their kind of worldview, you have microeconomic behavior. So people are buying stuff, selling stuff. They're buying assets, selling assets. They're paying taxes. Government is spending or the other way around for them. And, and all of this basically sums up to, to macroeconomics. And this makes it incredibly hard to, to discuss with these people because they, they don't understand that macroeconomics is accounting plus behavior. And if you don't understand the accounting, then, then you can't even start formulating your model. Okay, so that is why, why these discussions are sometimes also useless, because when the other side does not concede that first you need to understand the creation of money before you can model behavior, then it doesn't, there's, there's, no, there's no basis for discussion. And this, I think, is also what happened with Jeppe, that basically he, he said, there is no mathematical model, so I, I cannot look into it. And we were basically saying, look, before you need a model, you first need to make sure you understand the accounting. And because you don't understand the accounting, we, we don't even want to see your model either because, because you even don't get the accounting. So, so he, he actually, uh, forgive me, he actually, he actually dismisses uh, the, the meaningfulness of the nature of money. You know, it's not, it, it's important, but it's not so valid for what we're discussing here. And not only does he dismiss it, he dismisses it in a footnote. Mm. Yeah, and that's the important thing. So if you ask an engineer, so how does this motor engine work in, in that car? The engineer can explain that to you and will go to great length and say, this part is doing this, and this is where the gas comes in and the air, and uh, then the exhaust pipe is where the, the exhaust fumes come out. And nobody would take an engineer seriously who says, well, in this motor, we, you, we suck in the exhaust fumes, and then we divide it up into gasoline and, and air. And this is how the motor works. I mean, people would laugh at it. But in economics, it's it's completely normal, apparently, that you, you cannot explain money 
like yep he's he's not able to explain money and when you tell him that it's important he just laughs it away but come on this is an institution which matters quite a lot for our economy and if you cannot explain how the banking system works how government spends into the economy these kind of things why should i take you seriously as a macroeconomist okay so how can you aggregate up the the single balance sheets if you don't even understand how a single balance sheet works and uh, mm -hmm. that is something which I think uh, is, is, again, it was something of a result which I expected. But um, it's sometimes also amazing to see it happening that, that for, from their perspective, what we are doing sometimes, they, they, believe, they basically think it's finance. Um, back in the 70s, there was a split between economics and finance and some people doing balance sheet stuff and, and finance. They basically created their own journals, Journal of Finance and so on. And apparently with this kind of split up, the, the macroeconomists have, have lost all of the interest that had, they had left and, and they're basically not, not able to, to discuss money, money creation anymore, which of course is a big loss because we're, we're talking about nothing else. And we talk about QE, target two imbalances, talking about uh, government spending and, and public debt. We talk about all kinds of, of Green New Deal ideas or uh, job guarantee financed by the federal government. I mean, we, we're talking about money all of the time, uh, but in economics, in our discipline, a couple of decades ago, we, we made this decision uh, that all these things should be basically outsourced to finance. And that, I think, that, that explains the, the lack of knowledge and also the, the misunderstanding of, of the nature of money on part of the mainstream colleagues. It seems it seems that there is no way to do what we need to do except for communicating it to the public who would then put pressure on the system in order for it to change. And that seems the only route, yeah. uh, the only viable route that we have. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen one single new classic economist look at MMT and then conclude that, that MMT is correct and what, what he taught is wrong. Uh, by the way, I'm probably the only one who, who was like this. So I... Uh, I learned uh, economics at university. I did my PhD and only afterwards I, I heard about MMT. So I, I looked it up and I, I basically said, okay, this, this is correct. Um, it's, it's an odd situation to put me in as a post PhD student, <laughs> as a postdoc. But I, I understood that what I had learned so far was, was basically not true. And it, not, not even what is what not helpful, but it was basically, it was completely wrong. Some people are trying to defend neoclassical economics by saying, oh, it's, it's simplified economics and it helps to teach students valuable lessons. No, it's not. It's just plain wrong. And I think we, we are having a social problem here that the, the economics faculties, they don't want to admit that they've been wrong. And, and that is something which we, we have to solve by, by, yeah, like you said, creating pressure, public pressure, so that they have to become scientists again. So roughly how many years did you, well, two, two, two questions, which I think you can answer quickly, which is roughly how many years did you go before, like as soon as your PhD was done or soon after? And, and how much instinct did you have that maybe there was something wrong or were you convinced until you saw MMT? Well, I, I started studying in 1997. Um, and then I, I finished in 2002. Then I, I worked in Spain for, for a year, more or less. And then I did my PhD studies. It was an economic geography model where I looked at the, the distribution of economic activity in space. And after I was done, it was neoclassical. I thought, I don't understand really how money works. Um, let's see if I can find something there. And um, yeah, I, I found out that I didn't know much and there were disturbing ideas in the um, publications of the MMT economists. So I, I checked it out 
it took me about half a year to understand that it's correct. Um, and then I changed my mind. And, but and you, did you have did you have instincts before then that something was off or it just completely no. got you out of the blue? No, it completely it got me completely out of the blue. I mean, I knew about Keynesian economics, um, but I, I was not taught by, by Keynesian economists. So I, I came from a mainstream university. I had a professor, a PhD advisor who was he was a very good one, interested in the history of economic thought. So he knew quite a lot of, of things. Uh, but I had no idea that we were this far off uh, in, in our stuff that we taught at university. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You really came back from the brink. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And Asker, I presume that you started off on the correct foot as opposed to switching dramatically like that? No, not really. Um, in, as a political science student, um, we and, and the future uh, civil servants in government, um, we get to, to be taught two modules of economics by the economics uh, department. And so you get micro and macroeconomics and, and you get a, uh, you go through all the models with, with less, less math. So, so you get to know all the models in less time. And then you basically, by the end of the courses, you know that if an economist tells you something uh, when in government, when you're finished with your studies, then they are right. So you should do what what the economists are saying because they know better and this is how the economy works and 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 the Keynesian mod parts of the of the courses they are really they have been adapted or the bastard Keynesianism as John Robertson called it this is what you're being taught and it's adapted to fit the neoclassical economics so so that any Keynesian point is is only temporary so you and then you can leave the the medium and the long run to to the supply side rather than seeing history as a as a series of, of short runs and then and which is is the way you have to do it if you want to to take historical time seriously as, as we touched upon earlier and uh, so roughly at what point in your schooling or whatever did you realize that MMT was out there and that it was correct during my master's degree I, I had a course with a with which was taught by an employee at the Danish financial uh, sector authority and and he was teaching uh, he was teaching about the financial sector and he's teaching Minsky and he was teaching David Graper so we I learned about debt five, five uh, this, this history of the 5000 five. years of debt uh, and how and and it's basically confirming the MMT story and then back when I was taking that course and I was uh, I was made aware that Warren Mosler was coming to town, and it was it was presented as as this guy with a like I think they use they're saying it was the Elon Musk and economic theory, so it's mm-hmm. this mad genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went there, and uh, I didn't understand one word of what he was saying. Basically, uh-huh. because, uh, my head flipped upside down, and I could tell from all the questions from the audience that nobody understood what he was saying because. We're so used to um, to the orthodox way of uh, thinking about public finance in Denmark. It's horrible. I, I usually say that we are the best Germans in Europe, actually, because we <laughs> are so so conventional. Um, and and then I just went straight home and read Warren's book, and then I, it just cascaded, you know, with MMT literature because it was obviously obviously right. But so I came I'm- I came from from the David Graper chapter on, on the history of money as debt. And that's really a, um, a precondition for understanding really how, how the world works, or it's a good, good way to approach it. Wow. Okay. Okay. 
Um, all right, great. Uh, well, let me just ask a final question, and I know you, you you sort of answered this, but maybe to just round it out and to to perhaps say it more concisely, we're going to be speaking again on uh, you know the larger issue of political economy, and uh, I'll, I'll use the term discrimination of you know being shut out and and methodologies and so on. Can you put this experience into that larger context um, as sort of a, a preview of that the the larger picture that we're talking about here? Yeah, what we've been talking about is really the importance of understanding the interest rate and the and the government's setting the interest rate and the power to do so, um, and and what these models and theories from the you know, classical body of work is what they're doing is is to naturalize or you could say naturalize the, the interest rate. It's making it something that's not political. It's endogenous to how the economy works. So you, so you cannot fight nature. So that is why uh, the Danish government, for instance, is always assuming that the interest rate is heading towards 4%, between 4 and 5, 5% historically. So, so what, what MMT um, is, is providing from a political economy standpoint is a way to mobilize different arguments about how to conduct public policy. Because when, when you're uncertain about what your own interest rate policy is going to be in the future, because you don't know that you control it, then you'll be reluctant to do to implement ambitious uh, policies, and and this is this is such a, a big issue for conducting a powerful green transition uh, of a green new deal style. So so this is there's there's a straight line from from all the uh, from all the arithmetic uh, that we've touched upon in this talk, and uh, and then to what policies are actually implemented in government. And as I said, all the all the civil servants have been going through neoclassical macro and microeconomics 101. And that means that they they are afraid to question what's coming from the economists. Right. Uh, Dirk, if you wanted to say anything regarding that. Yeah, I, I agree with Oscar. I mean, it's the old idea of economic laws that are out there that are fundamental. And uh, the economists pose themselves as technocrats, basically telling people, look, we know how the economy works. You don't. Um, so please let us do our job. Here's the natural rate of unemployment. Here's the natural rate of the interest. Here's the natural rate of this and that. And then basically you, you just say that there are some decisions in the economy and they are decided by the economy itself. And there's no way that uh, you can influence this in the political process, like setting the interest rate, setting government spending, moving the moving down the rate of unemployment, these kind of issues. So a large part of mainstream economics is basically an instrument to to basically not see the truth, to not see the policy uh, interventions that are possible. Um, so it's basically a thing to to hide uh, to hide the reality from people and basically. Yeah, not allow people to to make choices, but instead uh, pretend that it's all natural and, and conforming to economic law. So there is no really, there's really no choice, and that's what economics has been for a couple of decades by now. And we we need to change that um, because we can build the institutions that we need. We can ask people what they want and then implement reforms. It's it's all possible, um, but of course you need to to redefine economics if you want to do this. Actually, if I may, Dirk, um, just because of the particular path that you took, where you had some, you know, you had significant academic experience as a neoclassical, and thinking that that was correct for a while, uh, not to not to share any gory details, but just I'm curious of 
you had a community within the neoclassical, you had relationships within the neoclassical community. And I, and when you discovered MMT and were convinced that you were correct, you must have, I don't know whether it's ostracized or choose to leave. Uh, like, I'm wondering if anybody else you were communicating with were convinced or, you know, considering this as well. Like, what, what was the dynamic of that? Well, that's yeah, that's a very interesting question, and the the answer is pretty pretty easy. I um I was left out. Uh, I was left on my own. So um, people stopped discussing with me. Um, basically, I did not final, find find uh, I, I did not follow the paradigm, and because I did not follow the paradigm, uh, I was not able to to convince them. Because as as it's clear with uh, Yepa also, if if you're outside of the paradigm. Then baby, people people are telling you that you you do not express yourself clearly, or that what you say could be expressed in a model. So so why don't you put it in a model? These kind of things. So this is clearly uh, a methodology which has been chosen to to end conversations about certain things. So so economics has not always been like this. So there was at some point institutional economics, for example, like a hundred years ago, where economists, progressive economists, discussed how to improve institutions. Um, but now, also on the progressive side, many many people are not not eager to discuss how to actually improve lives. So in in Europe, for example, we have the eurozone, and it's clearly dysfunctional. And we should discuss discuss how we reform the stability and growth pact because it's just, just this emphasis on budget deficits is it's harmful. We should replace this emphasis, and um, yeah, this kind of discussion is is not happening in large parts of the of the progressive economists either. They they prefer to tinker with the rules, but I think that we we need to change that. We need to to look at what we want to achieve in the real world, uh, and then find rules which which help us achieve this. And uh, assuming that that governments uh, are wasting money and they have to be reined in by budget deficit rules. This basically gives away the whole game. So, so you're basically using a, a neoliberal framework, uh, out of which not much progressive uh, action can come. And yeah, to me, to me personally, I I have not been able to convince a single economist to join me. But I have taught many students, and uh, some of them are now uh, working their their way up, mostly in politics. Uh, one of my students has now become he's he's now working for a member of the German Parliament. He also published a book mm. on MT. So, so things are improving, mm. but it doesn't seem that the the economics, uh, the academic economists will come around. I think it's just like with the other paradigms, um, the the neoclassical economists will die out, just like the dinosaurs, and then they will be replaced by by young people who are eager to to change things, and they are then bringing in the the new MMT stuff. I think that's that's what's going to happen. Okay. Um... It really does seem to boil down to do mainstream says trusts maths and theory and don't yeah. trust your don't trust your lying eyes and reality and your inner thoughts, your inner opinions, your your instincts. Don't trust them because we have the maths and models. You, you know, it really seems that 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 cut and dry. Yeah. And, and but they have some some uh, instances to to generalize from. So they have the. The, the vocal shock when he raised interest rates in 1979 and in the 80s, and 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 then you can just, if if you please, you can say that that is that is natural and that is general. And this is this high level of, of interest rates are what we should expect. And then and then you get the, the debt arithmetic going right in the in the 
in the negative direction. And, and equally so, the Eurozone debt crisis was so uh, detrimental to, to, to progressive policymaking and just to keeping economies afloat after the great financial crisis, because they sh in, in the Eurozone countries where they are not monetarily sovereign, they don't issue their own currency anymore, as MMC economists already pointed out before the advent of the Euro, that it would go wrong, and it did by the first shock. Then the interest rate rose until Mario Draghi uh, entered the fray and, and uh, started or promised, promised to start buying public debt to, uh, to, keep, to keep rates lower. But what we saw there was this panic dynamics that we know from the private sector and, and also for, for governments who's indebted in foreign currency and such. We saw it in the Eurozone countries. And what, and what this gives them is, is this short branch that they can hold on to and keep their analysis and models going, right? Because then you can say, well, the interest rate actually could rise to the level above growth rate. We've just seen it in the Eurozone countries, but it's inapplicable to monetarily sovereign governments. Hmm. So we have Danish economists, the, the most prominent ones. They, they are saying right now that, that we can spend to, to save the economy from COVID. But, but, but what we learned from the Eurozone crisis and the financial crisis is you have to uh, watch out. You don't uh, get too much public debt then the interest rate can spiral. So, so, so they have something in reality to point to, but that, this is where the institutional analysis comes in. It's so important to be, important to, to be able to distinguish between monetarily sovereign governments and, and countries with, where they're, which are located further uh, down on the continuum of uh, monetarily, monetary sovereignty. Yeah, let me jump right. in one, once more at this point. Um, the interesting thing in the Eurozone is that now with the pandemic emergency purchase program, the spreads are, are not going up like, like in the last crisis, in the Euro crisis. So basically the interest the, the rate... The what are not going up? Oh, be, yeah, the, the spreads... The interest rate differences between Greek bonds and German bonds or Spanish bonds and German bonds, these, um, these differences between those, those yields, uh, they, they are under control. And why? Because the ECB has um, incre increased their, their asset purchase program um, to 1.35 trillion euros. Okay, so that is quite a lot. Um, and you can clearly see that even in the eurozone, under the rules that we currently have, deficits are off. Um, and there's this uh, asset purchase program. You can you can easily see that that if the ECB wants, they can push down the interest rate for all those countries to whatever level they, they desire. So even in the eurozone, we have the power to influence the rate of interest, which becomes a policy variable by the ECB, uh, steered by the ECB. And and that is also a, a main lesson I think from from this crisis that that even in the eurozone you can. You can think about the eurozone in terms of MMT, and then you have a sovereign currency. If, for example, the ECB is acting as a lender of last resort, as they do now, and again the deficits are off, so the stability and growth pact, uh, the the general escape clause has been has been uh, accepted or has been activated, so deficits don't matter. So, so right now the ECB uh, is more or less like the Fed, and that that also applies to all these governments, like the Greek government, the Spanish government. If they wanted to spend, they could. So, so that is also a very interesting thing that you can you can easily change monetary systems um, to make national governments more sovereign or or not, and that is again it's a political decision. It's not something which is which is given. 
It's actually actually the existence of U two is I think substantial for MMT because most I don't know if it's fair to say most, but certainly the most prominent MMT you know figures are in for are in developed fully developed totally financially sovereign countries, and the fact that you are both you know strong MMTers in countries that are clearly not as high of a financial sovereignty, um, I don't know that that seems like uh, a very clear statement of the, against the uh, well MMT only works in in the U.S. and so on. Right. Um, uh, well, thank you, thank you both so much for doing this. Um, I I read Yepe's paper, and then I read your paper, and then I read Yepe's paper again, and it was an entirely new paper, and then I read yours again, and it was an entirely new paper, and then I read Scott Fallweiler's uh, 2006 fiscal res- sustainability something paper. I, I learned an incredible amount. And, and I just, I feel like no matter how many times that, that you keep reading these important things that you have, you know, that you've read earlier in your learning, that it's, it's just completely, it's just a completely new experience <laughs> because the level of detail, it, you know, it can get deeper and deeper and deeper. So, um, so thank you both so much for coming on. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that you'd like to just to say to close out or to. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for, for inviting us and taking the time and diving into this. It's uh it can be dense, but it, it should be worth the while, and I'm happy that you say so. And I just want to to, uh, to emphasize and highlight Scott Fulweiler's paper, as, as you just mentioned. I have the title here. It's from 2016, The Debt Ratio and Sustainable Macroeconomic Policy. If you're interested in this and, and if you want to understand the math that, 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 Jeff, that you mentioned earlier, this is the paper to go to because he's actually trying to make you understand it rather than uh, obfuscate what is going on, and 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 you feel more empowered when you read it uh, by his hand. That's great. If you wouldn't mind sending me that link, and I'll be sure to put it in. I'm actually talking about a 2006 paper called hmm. uh, I believe it's. I'll, I'll actually you might as well. It's just right here. If you don't mind holding on a moment. Interest rates and fiscal sustainability. 2006 working paper 53. July 2006, um, which is basically, I think, a, a precursor to his 2020 paper when the interest rate is in, on the national debt as a policy variable mm, uh, and yeah. printing money does not apply. And I'm sure that the paper you just mentioned as well. Um, but yeah, it's it basically it dives into the heart of uh, how I summarized what I think uh, Yepe's paper was saying regarding modeling out to infinity and so on. Yep. Also from my part, uh, thanks a lot for for having us. Uh, It was a pleasure to discuss with you. And we're looking forward to the next installment. Thank you so much. I will uh, talk to you soon. Um, It was nice talking with you. And I will uh, see you back online and hopefully in about a month or so. Yeah, have a nice day. Thanks. Bye. Bye, Dirk. Bye-bye.
Today I talk with Oskar Voltsgaard and Dirk Entz on their 2020 response to a paper criticizing modern money theory, or MMT. Dirk is a PhD economist based in Berlin, and Oskar is a Danish PhD student in innovation and public policy with a master's in international political economy and economics. Their paper is in response to a 2019 paper by Danish PhD mainstream economist Jeppe Drudel called A Kinder Egg on MMT. It expresses primarily the mainstream concern for the long-term fiscal sustainability of government spending and its corresponding debt and interest. Since MMT demonstrates that large amounts of new spending on public purpose is perfectly safe, not to mention desperately needed by millions, the criticism is essentially aimed at the MMT project itself. This interview and the mainstream argument inspired a lengthy post addressing the several assumptions on which the argument is based and why each of them is incorrect. A link to the post can be found in the show notes. A major reason that Oscar and Dirk decided to write their response was because Drudel's paper was written in what we consider to be good faith. By that, we mean that it cites MMT academic literature and treats its authors with respect. Too many so-called critiques do neither. They pretend that MMT says something it doesn't and then vehemently criticize that made-up argument. They are also often snide and personally insulting to the MMT project and its developers and supporters, both as individuals and as a whole. I've collected several examples of good faith arguments against MMT in a post, along with responses by MMTers, a link to which can also be found in the show notes. Regardless of faith, the argument between mainstream and MMT is not occurring in the academic papers themselves, but in the assumptions on which those papers are based. In other words, the argument is not taking place in the papers, but in the world around them. Oscar and Dirk's response does not directly address Drudel's arguments, but rather rejects its assumptions and replaces them with ones that reflect the world in which we actually live. After seeing Dirk and Oscar's response, Drudel stated on Twitter, this is a non-reply. Especially with those critiques that are of less than good faith, they are not written in the spirit of learning or improving MMT or the economics discipline as a whole. Rather, they are to convince the general public to dismiss MMT and its developers and supporters out of hand. MMT clearly has the more convincing argument and is also understandable by the general public. It is convincing substantially because it is understandable by the general public. The only hope mainstream has is to prevent the public from looking at those arguments or to its authors to begin with and to convince them that if they do, they shouldn't believe their lying eyes. This episode is part one of a two-part conversation, and it's also part one of a larger four-part series on the relationship between mainstream or neoclassical economics and MMT. Parts two and three are with Sam Levy on the core assumptions of mainstream economics, and part four is again with Dirk and Oscar on the larger political context in which these issues exist.